A Thai Airways International A310 is flying from Bangkok to Nepal, but they never make it. What caused this flight to smash into a mountain? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. We're disasters, as per usual. Yeah. Uh, Mostly because this whole everything. Yes. Sick. Sickness and... Both Miranda and I were sick. I have to, like, edit episodes for a while. And that's fine. I'll I'll help, too, but... Yeah. I will also help. Yes. Paige got tired of our bull... And we're like, you deserve a break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And legit, it happened and I was like, fair. Fair. <laughs> totally I was, fair. I was planning on taking over for a little while anyway, but. They need a break. Yes. So we're editing, which means I'm going to beg, please let's not go on ridiculous tangents this episode. Thank you. <laughs> we'll try, but a lot of times the tangents are meaningful. Mm, they can be. I don't be. think you've heard some of the tangents we've had. Yeah, just leave them in there anyway. Uh, People like it. It's entertaining. It depends on the tangent. Or put it in the blooper face. reel. Where am I? No one can see my face. So how would it depend <laughs> on <my face>? Tangent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh, there's people to thank. Oh, There are. Or at least one. We got at least one. I think we have actually two new patrons. That we, we have two? I know of one. Thank you to our new patrons, Timothy and Rudy. Yes. Timothy and Rudy. There were two. See? Thanks. Thank you so much. We appreciate your patronage. Thanks for being here. Because thanks for doing that. Yeah. How, <laughs> never mind. That's a tangent. <laughs> Reel it in. Reel it in. Most of the reason why I would say let's not tangent is because I have a feeling this might be a little bit of a long episode. Yeah. It has the potential. I guess we'll find out. I guess. But this is some of the longest notes that I've done in a while. So. Me too. And then I looked at them and maybe they just felt long, but they don't look as long. I don't know. Mine are definitely long. Okay. Well. Uh, do all the normal stuff. Uh, newsletters on the website for December. So if you would like to check that out, you can do so. Also, uh, oh, we gotta we gotta do our thing. <gasps> the thing. Oh, the thing. That's this episode, huh? Yes, because it comes out the day after Christmas. Oh my. Okay. That means it's the end of the year. It, oh uh, yes, God. it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. The next episode is in the new year. Everyone, buckle up. It is time to learn the names of countries you didn't know the names of. <laughs> That's the truest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. So as we come to the close of a year. Another lo- year together with yes. our BS. <laughs> together again. We have to thank all of you. We want to thank all of you. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> and also, yes. Uh from around the world. Because you guys are the reason we even can keep doing this. So. That is true. So we, we are going to say Merry Merry Christmas. Happy Chrysler. <laughs> yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Kwanzaa. Happy Holidays to everybody. Happy and Yule. Happy, happy Winter Solstice. Happy Almost New Year. Happy Happy New Year. Happy close to end of 2023, beginning of 2024. Yeah, that. So thank you to the United States. United Kingdom. Canada, Australia, Germany, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, Singapore, Poland, Finland, Brazil, France, New Zealand, Ireland, India, Austria, Switzerland, Iceland, United Arab Emirates, Belgium, Latvia, South Africa, Japan, Denmark, Trinidad and Tobago, Mexico, Spain, Hong Kong, 
Italy. Indonesia. The Netherlands again. <laughs> Weird. Puerto Rico. Bahrain. The Philippines. Taiwan. Greenland. The Czech Republic. Portugal. Turkey. Greece. Colombia. Malaysia. Jersey. Barbados. Kuwait. Costa Rica. The French Polynesia. Pakistan. The Bahamas. Thailand. Ivory Coast. Russia. Chile. The Bahamas again. <laughs> Bulgaria. <laughs> Romania. Argentina. South Korea. Saudi Arabia. The Dutch East Indies. China. Hungary. Cameroon. Kenya. Croatia. Slovakia. Vietnam. Nigeria. Ukraine. Estonia. Israel. Algeria. Ecuador. The Cayman Islands. Morocco. Slovenia. Qatar. Malta. Dominican Republic. North Macedonia. Why is that different than the regular Macedonia? Dude, <laughs> Egypt. Syria. Gibraltar. Maldives. Nepal. <laughs> Sri Lanka. Djibouti. <laughs> Cyprus. Lithuania. Ethiopia. Antigua and Barbuda. Bangladesh. Albania. Jamaica. Luxembourg. Tunisia. Korea. The Isle of Man. Bosnia and Herzegovina. Iran. Cambodia. Macau. Panama. Reunion. Equatorial Guinea. Iraq. Jordan. Guyana. Botswana. Oman. The Kingdom of Jordan. Eswatini. Peru. Tajikistan. Georgia. Guam. Curaçao. Togo. Dominica. Guinea. Macedonia. Nicaragua. St. Martin. The U.S. Minor Outlying Islands. Serbia. The Republic of Moldova. Fiji. Mozambique. Ghana. Somalia. And Bolivia. Apparently, we're listening to in all those places. And some of those places, I'm like, mm, probably not. <laughs> probably not. That's I feel probably, like. probably, hopefully, a VPN. I'm but... thinking a lot of them are VPNs. But, you know, we like to think that we have listeners. I know we do all over the world, but, like, mm, Korea? Really? <laughs> we'll mm, say probably th- we'll not. Say thank you anyway, just in case. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of those are in different order. Yes, than mm-hmm. they were last time. Things have shifted. Yeah, 100%. Things have shifted. Thank you so much for being listeners and enjoying our podcast. We do appreciate it. Yes. That it... being said, now, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Thai Airways Flight 311. Thank you to Gavin and Gabriel for requesting this. This one is a big one. And I will preface with one thing. It is confusing, and yep. it will be, and it should be. I made it that way on purpose because it was. 100%. Unless I remember what happens. You right. don't. Um, don't? <laughs> She's like, please don't. Just I, don't. I will say, when we get to the end of this, when we get to the end of this nice, lengthy story, you won't have many questions. Okay. About why. Great. However, we still have some answers to give after I do the story. There will be questions about what. There will be questions about why. Sure. But the big why is obvious. Oh, hey, look at that. This accident occurred on July 31st of 1992. This was an Airbus A310-300 with the tail number Hotel Sierra-Tango India Delta. The A310 was the shortened version of the A300. It had... Typically a max capacity of 200 seats. It was the the smallest wide body ever made. And it wasn't super popular, but there was still over 250 of them built. They just 
they were kind of a rare airliner, and there was there's still some of them actually flying in airline service today, mostly in Iran. However, <clears throat> Air Transat flew them up until COVID, and the world kind of thought that they should be brought back with new engines and such because it kind of fits in that what we call middle market. And instead, Airbus decided to make the A321 XLR and LR, which fit fit about the same or more people, but do so, does so in a narrow body, single aisle, rather than a wide body, dual aisle. But the wide body feels so much more luxurious. Yes. It definitely has like this, like a wide body gives you like the prominence of going somewhere. Like it's big. It feels big. Even though the A310 in length is shorter than the A321. So that's hilarious. Yes. This was a flight from Bangkok to Kathmandu in Nepal. Bangkok, Thailand, Kathmandu, Nepal. Not terribly far apart, but still a few hours. The captain for this flight was Prita Sutamai. He was 41 years old. At the time, he had 13,250 hours total, of which about 4,400 were on the A310, which is quite respectable. Pretty remarkable because mm-hmm. we'll talk about this, but the A310 was still pretty new at the time. It had only been in service since the late 80s, basically, and we're talking 1992. It only had a few years for him to get some hours on. The first officer was Funthat Bunyaye. Wow, what a name. I know. That's That ain't how it's spelled either. No. And I'm probably still butchering it. Who knows? He was 52 years old, so he's older than the captain. He also had more hours total at 14,600 hours total. However, he had 200 hours less on the A310 at 4,200. So still quite a bit of experience. Both of them are experienced in the airplane. Both of them quite experienced overall. At Bangkok, 99 passengers joined the 14 crew members. Two flight crew and 12 cabin crew. 99 passengers all on a wall. Mm. Don't say that. That's horrible. (laughs) I know. It's worse when you hear what happened. Yeah, we'll talk about it. The flight departed Bangkok at 10.49 a.m. local time out of Bangkok. Let me tell you, because all from here, the time switched to Nepali time. The report was in UTC, I think because they didn't want to deal with the conversion, which I did. Oh, why? I know. However, I used a time calculator, because those exist, to calculate pretty much all of these, because it was the only way I could keep my sanity. So, going forward, the times will be in Nepali time, which, by the way, is five hours and 45 minutes off of UTC time. Dude, that's horrible. Yes. (laughs) That's really bad. They're that country. 45 minutes. Yeah. They're 45 Why? minutes off of the rest of the world. Why? What is so important that you have to be 45 minutes off? Um, My guess is, and I would love to look this up, but I was thinking about it and I was like, I wonder if this is a feud thing with their neighbors. And they were like, we don't want to match any of y'all. Oh, my so Lord. So our time is different. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. Whatever it is, that's what it is. Was I right? According to the BBC. <laughs> The odd time difference between Nepal and India has resulted in a national joke that Nepalis are always 15 minutes late. (laughs) Um, Nepal is five hours and 45 minutes ahead of GMT because it sets the meridian of the Nepal standard time at Gaur Shankar, a mountain east of Kathmandu. Okay. So they're doing it based on a location. That's fine. Whatever. That's real weird. Yeah. 
Just know that this was a pain, but I got it figured out. Time zones are so stupid. Yes. <laughs> they to out- specify, Nepal made this choice. Yes, undoubtedly. They're like, I want to be different. Yes. And that's according to Britannica, the source of the greatest of Wikipedias of our childhoods. Sure. The takeoff claim and crews were normal. <clears throat> 12, 11 p.m. local time in Nepal, which is an hour and 15 minutes difference from where they left. Okay. An hour and 15 earlier. So they've been flying for a while. Just know that. A handful of hours. The flight made initial contact with the Kathmandu Area Control Center, or ACC, and reported being over the Monda fix, M-O-N-D-A fix, flying level at flight level 350 or 35,000 feet. So Monda is just a point along their route. The flight reported an estimated time of reaching the Romeo. Yes, that Romeo is spelt exactly like that. Romeo, Romeo, <clears throat> wherefore art thou Romeo? Yes, that Romeo. That's hilarious. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> Christy's got the jokes tonight. Yep. It's, it, it gets funnier when you listen to this after you've listened to it once. Right. So anyways, the flight reported an estimated time of reaching the Romeo fix at 12.39 p.m. local time, which is an approach fix point that is 41 D- DME, which we've talked about DME before. It's distance measuring equipment. However, DME is also a distance that you measure from the airplane. It is a straight line distance to a point to the southwest of the airport, basically. It's actually to the southwest of the VOR, the Kathmandu VOR, which is at the airport. So that tells them how far away they are from basically the center point of the airport Ish. to the nose. But it's a straight line distance, and you have to remember that this is at an angle because it's literally a straight line from the airplane's nose to the VOR. So there's a bit of deviation. But this is what they were using to measure distance pretty much the whole time. This is a VORDME approach. It is a VORDME approach, which is why they were doing that. Stop doing that. It was not the right thing. We'll talk about it later on. So being 41 DME means they're 41 nautical miles DME. Okay. From From the the airport. Yeah. The air traffic controller then provided the flight with the latest weather update for the airport, which reported the visibility as greater than 10 kilometers with scattered to overcast clouds between... 2,500 to 10,000 feet above ground, and surface winds of 5 knots at 100 degrees. Winds aren't much. Visibility is pretty good. So far, so good. Clouds are relatively high. Is Kathmandu one of those weird airports? That's real specific. (laughs) Kathmandu is one of the most dangerous airports on the planet. That's what I mean. Like It's like a one-way-in, one-way-out type of deal. It's not one-way-in, one-way-out. But it's super dangerous because it's the in the city, middle of the Himalayas, right? Yes. Well, yes, the city and the airport sit in a bowl. Yes. And I, seem, I think I seem to remember a little bit about this from a previous you might, episode. You might recall US Bangla. Yes. Which will is pertinent in a way because you are able to approach the north side of the runway. I mean, it is one runway. With runway 02 and runway 20. Mm-hmm. Which you, isn't confusing at all. No. Runway 02, of course, means you're approaching from the south, right. going north. Um, you can land on runway 20, but typically there's no straight ends on runway 20. You do what is called a circling approach, and that yes. was the first time we talked about it was on U.S. Bangla. So you do a circling approach. We might have talked about it on another one. Air Blue 202 was circling. Was that a circling approach? Yes. Okay, well, anyways, U.S. Bangla was very pertinent because they messed that one up royally. Um, yeah, they screwed that up real bad. Yeah. So you do a circling approach around to runway 20. That's the other option at Kathmandu at the, at the time. So that's 
it's a dangerous airport because of where it sits. The mountains to the north of it, that is where Everest is, so they go up to 29,000 feet. So, mind you, there's not a whole lot of room for error on the north side. They are tall peaks going out. On the south side, you've got shorter peaks that go it's up. It's only like 8,000. Yeah, go up to like eight, 9,000 feet. Yeah. The airport sits at about 4,500. So, it's actually still lower than here. What? Yeah. Yes. Hey. Yeah, because we're a mile high. How is Kathmandu lower than whatever? I don't know. It is. I mean, I know we're high, but... <laughs> Yes. I'm on one today. <laughs> Anyways. 12, 18 p.m. local time, the flight requested descent, but did not receive a reply from the air traffic controller. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It took several calls from the flight before the air traffic controller finally replied, but not to give them a descent, but to inform them about a, a flight, to inform the flight about another flight in the area that was not much of a traffic factor, but was still inbound on a similar-ish approach, similar path. It was behind them. Kind of. They weren't really. They were coming from a different direction, but they were further away, I should say. So why did they do that? We'll talk about why later on. Because that seems very not applicable. Agreed, but there is actually a reason why they did that. Okay. I hope you talk about that. Yes. I mean, we'll talk about it as a whole later on. Okay. Because it has to do with the area. The air traffic controller also informed the flight that there was no other traffic at or above 15,000 feet and requested that they report once over Romeo, and they were cleared to descend at their discretion to an altitude at or above 15,000 feet. So at that point, the air traffic controller was like, yeah, he didn't actually say you were cleared to descend, but he said, um, as per Calcutta ATC, remain at or above 15,000, report over Romeo, which was him saying, you can descend down to as low as 15,000 feet, but just report over Romeo. The flight then informed the air traffic controller that they were leaving flight level 350, 35,000 feet. So they were going to start descending. Okay. It gets way, it gets way worse. 12.23 p.m. local time, the air traffic controller informed the flight that the winds had changed to shifting between 150 degrees and 180 degrees at 10 to 12 knots. So kind of literally just Tailwind. shifty. And tailwindy. The air traffic controller also reported that the visibility south of runway 02, so on their, on their approach, approach okay. was only 1.5 kilometers due to heavy rain, but other areas around the airport were 3 to 4 kilometers of visibility, so they advised the flight that the circling approach to runway 20 was available. But why would you do that when you could come straight in? I realize that they have a tailwind, but even that... Even they have a tailwind and very low visibility. About a mile of visibility. On approach, which... We'll talk about it, but per the company's requirements, that was not enough to do the approach into Kathmandu. The straight-in approach? Yeah. Correct. Which, by the way, isn't straight-in either. It's kind of straight-in, but you either have to do it super steep. Or dodge a mountain or two. Or the approach, <clears throat> which in the modern day, the only approach to runway 02 from the south, basically, is to go around a mountain and then straight-in on the last couple of miles. So why don't they have, like, a glide slope or something? Because the glide slope would stretch 10 miles in a straight line. You can't change that. So it's useless, basically. Kemendu still can't have one mm. to this day. Okay. Because the mountains are only about five miles from the airport. So it's just, it's not useful. It doesn't, it's not, it's so, not a usable tool. So... 
they're basically telling them you have to do the circling approach. Yeah, per the charts, they 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 we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. But they're telling them now, like, hey, runway two zero is available via circling approach because the visibility is better that way, and you won't have a tailwind. So were they set up to do that? No, they were setting up for the runway zero two approach, not for the circling. Okay. But they were still pretty far away. Okay, so they could still change. Theoretically, yes. Oh, that doesn't sound good, but okay. After some dis- <laughs> <laughs> well, let me continue. After some discussion amongst the flight crew, the flight then requested to continue their approach to runway zero two. At that time, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they would have to land on runway two zero because the visibility was too poor on the south side of the airport for an approach and landing on runway zero two. So they were like, JK, no, you have so to do this. So initially, the ATC was like, hey, just, you know, visibility's bad, but we got 2-0, you can take that. And the crew was like, nah, we want 2-0. And he was like, no, you're not going to do it. <laughs> Let me <laughs> rephrase. Like, Let me rephrase. You are doing runway 2-0 now. Because there's not an option to go the other way. Right. So. That's great. Love that. At that time, the crew began calculating the fuel needed to divert to Calcutta, which is in India, and about 400 miles away. Which was their alternate. Hell of an alternate. It is. 12.27 p.m. local time, the flight reported being over Romeo, at which time the air traffic controller cleared the flight to Sierra, another fix, at 11,500 feet, which is another approach fix at 10 DME to the south of the airport. They were told to expect the Sierra approach and requested to report 25 DME at 11,500 feet. So they're still quite a ways away, but they were requested when they get to 25 DME to report. And then also they're allowed to fly all the way to Sierra was their next point at 10 DME. The flight crew then discussed the approach and the missed approach procedures. 12.30 PM local time, the flight crew requested the current visibility at the airport, at which time the air traffic controller actually advised the flight that runway 02 was once again available because the visibility had shifted. Dude, make up your goddamn mind. Tell that to the Himalayan weather. Yes. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I feel like it's going to be all confusing. Um, <laughs> oh, it gets worse. What I have to say about your statement of it being confusing is you're not confused yet. I promise you. But you're going to be. I can already tell. Like, so are they going to do the straight approach or are they going to do the circle approach? So they've hey. been told that they can do the straight in for runway zero two now, basically. So now are they committed the to that? DMA. We'll talk about that in just a second. Okay. The flight then requested the surface conditions, at which time the air traffic controller requested the flight's distance from the Kathmandu VOR, or the airport. The flight reported being at 25 DME, which was supposed to be their reporting point anyways. At that time, so again, uh, the they requested the visibility conditions of the airport. You know, they had just requested it. The air traffic controller was like, well, what's your distance? And they said 25 DME, but what's the visibility? The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to contact the Kathmandu Tower rather than giving them visibility. It's a whole thing. Okay. So now they contacted the tower. 12.31 p.m. local time. The flight made initial contact with the tower controller and reported being at 23 DME. The flight crew selected slats 15 degrees five seconds later. So the slats, <clears throat> it's all controlled technically on the same lever, but I do need to cover this. On the A310, as with a lot of airplanes, the first couple of selections usually, although not on every airplane, are for the slats okay. first, and then the flaps 
usually the slats and flaps will start moving in tandem on like Airbus aircraft on the like second, third, things like that. On the older Airbus, then the newer Airbus, they move in tandem with the first selection. But on the A310, they were actually still degreed flaps rather than one, two, three, four selection like we have on modern Airbus aircraft. All of them, all of the modern Airbus aircraft. Instead, we have they were degreed flaps and slats. Like Boeing. Like Boeing. So on this one, the slats would extend before the flaps. Kind of an odd thing, but not really. It's it's normal in aviation. It just, it will matter. Let me put it that way. So they had selected slats to 15 degrees, which is the first setting. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for the approach to runway 02 and provided another weather update, which was wind calm, visibility two and a half kilometers, and rain overhead of the field. So it was raining. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to report 10 DME and when they were leaving 9,500 feet, which should be at 10 DME. 12.32 p.m. a local time, the crew selected flaps and slats 15 degrees. About 25 seconds later, the crew received a flat fault in the cockpit. Okay. The crew discussed and realized that the flaps had not extended. The crew made another attempt to get the flaps to extend by moving the flap lever back and forth. However, they received the same fault six seconds later. So that wasn't working. The crew discussed the need to have proper configuration for a landing at the challenging Kathmandu airport. They have to have the flaps and the slats working. They just do. And for the approach, not just for the landing. As the flight reached 13 DME and descending through 10,800 feet for 10,500 feet, the flight crew made a call to the air traffic controller and, and requested to go, quote, back to Kolkata due to technical, end quote. Oh, okay, so now they're turning around? They're planning to divert. Okay. By the way, when they did their fuel calculations, they found out they could go all the way back to Bangkok. Oh, okay. They had plenty of fuel. <laughs> Wasn't even an issue. Why do I feel like they changed their minds halfway through making this decision? We'll get there. The air traffic controller... <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like this crew is very indecisive. <laughs> We're not even close. Very I mean, indecisive. Uh, there's a lot of things about to happen. The air traffic controller acknowledged the message. However, simultaneous to this message, the flaps extended normally to the 20-degree position, which was selected by the crew after another cycle of the lever, back to slats 15 and 0, and then down to slats 15 and flaps 20. Just kidding. We're fine. <laughs> right. 12.34 p.m. in 8 seconds, 24 seconds after the request to head back to Calcutta, the flight crew made another call to the ATC to inform them that the technical issue was fixed, and they would like to make a left turn to rejoin or restart the Sierra approach, which is the approach they're doing, which meant returning to the Romeo fix. Okay. All right. Here, Here's my problem with them mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. And I, to be fair... I'm sure I've seen this episode on air disasters. You 100% have. And I just don't remember. Mm -hmm. But my problem is, if you had an issue with the flaps the first time, mm -hmm. and okay, it the uh, you recycled it, went back to normal, great. Mm -hmm. What's to say that's not going to happen again? We don't know, but they're going to try again. I don't know. I feel like that's a very, like, if it's already been a problem, sure. and you don't know the reason, Sure. I feel like committing to the decision to divert keep in mind they have the fuel to try yes i understand that i just feel like it's a little sketch mcgetch as it is sure you know not gonna deny that 
I mean, it's it's within. I mean, it's not the bad for trying, but I can already tell in my brain they're getting lost. Like they're they don't know where they are. They're getting lost. They're like, can we turn? I don't know. I let me put it this way: Do they they're know exactly not, where they are? They yes. do. They're not lost yet. Oh well. Okay. So right now they're still on the straight in to runway zero two, but now they're too high and too fast. So now they're requesting to go back to the beginning of the approach. Turn out. Go back to the beginning. Okay. Start this thing over again. The crew requested, quote, can we make a left turn to Romeo now? End quote. You're going to get really infuriated here really quick. After confirming the request with the flight, the air traffic controller stated, quote, clear Sierra approach, report 10 DME leaving 9,500 feet. But that's not what they asked. Correct. But we'll talk about that later on. Why? I f- why is ATC so freaking weird? We'll why? talk about that part in depth. <laughs> Later on. Why? I don't understand. Oh, it's it not gets... not what they ask. It gets so much worse. With ATC? Yes. Oh, why? The crew replied, quote, we can't land at this time. We have to dot, 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 left turn back to Romeo again and dot, 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 start our approach again, end quote. Yes, because we're too high and too fast. At that time, the air traffic controller asked the flight what their DME was. <laughs> At which time the flight said they were 9 DME and made a slight left turn to 015 degrees. So now they're not heading directly at the runway anymore. They have turned slightly left. Barely. Because, barely. Not much. Because not much. they need to go back to Romeo. Because eventually they're going to go back to Romeo. They're only nine nautical miles from the airport at this point. Right. They're not far. 12.35 p.m., the flight crew discussed the minimum obstacle clearance altitude, or the MOCA. <laughs> MOCA. Yes, M-O-C-A. <laughs> it's just saying, like, hey, what's in the area that we could hit? What's the minimum altitude? What's in the area? The Himalayas. Yes, everything. What it mountains? turns out everything is in the area. The flight crew then asked, quote, left turn out now, end quote, to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller asked for the, D- the DME again, and the flight informed them that they were at seven DME now. At that time. At this point, just fucking turn. Just turn. Well, it's Give funny it you say that. one and a half miles. It's funny that you say that because the, fl- the flight crew <laughs> began a climbing right turn and retracted the flaps and slats. Wait, now they're turning right? Yeah, they're doing a climbing, <laughs> right, climbing right turn and retracting the flaps and slats. What? I told you this was going to be confusing. Just bear with me because it gets so much worse. So much worse. We're not even at the worst of it yet. Does ATC have radar? No. No. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. I said we would talk about this. I promise we will. No, they don't have radar. I was like, wait. None of them do. What the hell? One of them does. They don't have it. Why? Okay. Then why is the crew like, can we turn left now? They don't know. (laughs) They don't know where you are. That's why they keep asking for the DME. Which is why it might make a little bit of sense. They're trying to put the picture in their mind about where this airplane is. The air traffic controller who's lost, not the crew at this point. (laughs) He's sitting in his seat. Yes, but he's lost about the airplane. He doesn't have the picture in his mind about where this airplane is anymore. And what he's trying to do is understand. And what he did... Again, we'll talk about this a little more later on because I don't want to give this all away, but he cleared them for the approach again. He did what? not, but he did not distinctly say to go back to Romeo. He said, you are clear for the Sierra approach. Report Which 10. Romeo is part of the Sierra approach. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> so talk about it later on. Anyways. And now they're turning right. Yeah. Turning right. So are they turning back toward the runway? 
No, they still haven't reached the airport. So there's before the right turn, they're still in line with the runway. Mm-hmm. I thought they turned slightly left, though. Yeah, but like I mean, the runway is here. Yeah, not even. It was five. The runway was here. They turned like this. They were doing this, and now they're climbing away to the right. But the runway's still all the way over okay. here. Okay. So now they're climbing away to the right. Okay. Not by much, though, by the way. The flight crew then reported at that time that they were climbing to the air traffic controller. And the air traffic controller responded by asking the flight to, quote, report 16 DME leaving 11,500 feet for Sierra approach, end quote, for runway 02. So he's telling them, do the approach, report when you're 16 DME out and at 11,500 feet. The aircraft rolled back to wings level on a heading of 045 degrees. So now they're a little to the right of the heading of the runway. Not by much. 020 would be runway, basically. 045 is not that far off on radial. The crew replied, quote, report 10 dot 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 DME dot 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 115. End quote. That's just a quick response to that. But you might have noticed it was wrong. The air traffic controller replied, quote, negative, dot, 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 report 10DME leaving 9,500 feet, end quote, which you might also notice is not what he just told them to do No, he before. said 16DME. And 11,500. Changed to kind of meet what they were talking about, but not exactly. What? And this is still for the Sierra approach for runway zero two. The flight crew replied, quote, affirm, report 10 DME 9,500, 9,500, end quote. Okay. Nine seconds later, the flight crew called back, stating, quote, we cannot make approach now. We right turn back to Romeo and climb to 18,000 feet to start our approach again. Okay, we know. Thank you. That's what they're stating to Do the it. air traffic controller. <laughs> the air traffic controller replied, quote, Roger, uh, stand by for the time being, maintain 11,500 feet, 11,500 feet due to traffic, end quote. Might remember there's another airplane in the area. As the aircraft was reaching 13,500 feet, the flight crew responded that they would maintain 13,000 feet, which the tower replied to with, quote, Roger, end quote. And the flight crew then asked, quote, is that okay, end quote. <laughs> Because Roger is not proper radio comms. No, it's not. The air traffic controller then reiterated the requirement to maintain 11,500 feet, 11,500 feet. Oh, my Due to other traffic in the area. Oh, my God. (laughs) At that time. Someone listen to somebody. (laughs) I don't know. And just do something. Just like, do something. Why are you at 13 when he definitely just said maintain 11, 5? Yeah. And then they were like, but we're at 13. Is that okay? And he goes, no, maintain 11, 5. <laughs> right. Bruh. <laughs> we'll talk about this later on. Dude. I hate to keep saying that, but we will. There's a lot There's a lot going on oh here. Oh, my God. There's so much happening right now. <laughs> at that time, the flight received an altitude alert warning, and the flight stopped climbing and began descending from 13,900 feet. The altitude alert warning is not something you should be concerned with. What it is is they set on the autopilot down to 11,500, and when you reduce an altitude from something you had set, which say 18,000 feet, the autopilot calls out when you have breached the altitude that you have set, even though you're in a climb. So that's what it was. It was a non-incident. It was a known thing. You're too high. Yes, thank you. Now the system's like, hey, altitude, you're above your altitude. And they were like, yeah, we know. We're resetting you. 
So, anyways, non-incident. At that time, the flight was on a heading of 245 degrees. So, basically going back towards Romeo. Basically. Kind of. 12.37 p.m. and 57 seconds, the flight inquired about the position of the traffic airplane. The air traffic controller informed them that the traffic was estimating reaching another fix called Simara, S-I-M-A-R-A, at 12.42 p.m., which was less than five minutes from the time this call was being made, and was at 15,000 feet and descending. The air traffic controller then asked the flight if they were still planning to go back to the Romeo fix to make another approach, which the flight crew again affirmed and said that's what they were planning to do. The air traffic controller then replied, Roger. Not proper communication. No. This is horrible. Right. It gets worse. While still in a turn, the flight requested again if they could proceed to the Romeo fix. Because Roger's not proper communication. (laughs) The air traffic controller confirmed, stating, quote, Roger, proceed to Romeo now and contact 126.5, end quote. Okay. Which was acknowledged by the flight crew. So that was the first time that they were actually given direct orders to go to Romeo. Yes. And they were told to go back to the ACC controller that they had previously been talking to. That's what that frequency is. Okay. 45 seconds later, after some discussion about the Mocha and Mora, which is minimum off-route altitude per the charts, the flight crew made initial contact with the ACC controller again. The crew reported, quote, We are heading 025, maintain 11,500, or 11,500 feet. We like to proceed to Romeo to start our approach again, end quote. Notice anything funny? I'm going to leave it at that. The air traffic controller then asked the flight to confirm the altitude and their intentions. Again, the flight replied, quote, We'd like to proceed to Romeo. We got some technical problems, dot, 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 concerned with the flight, end quote. The air traffic controller then stated, Tie 311, proceed to Romeo, maintain 11,500 feet, which is everything they said they were doing already, technically. The flight did not acknowledge that radio call. The flight crew then discussed some navigation of the aircraft and its computers. We'll get into that later. 12.41 p.m. and 33 seconds. The air traffic controller asked the flight for their DME from the Kathmandu VOR, to which the flight replied, Five! DME! How did they get closer? From the Kathmandu airport. Remember how I said something was fishy? We'll talk about this. How did they get closer? They're supposed to be turning away. Hold up. What? Did they turn in a circle? I don't understand what's going on. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. <laughs> the, air traffic then, the air traffic controller then asked, confirm 25DME. And the flight replied, emphatically, per the report, that is the word they used, quote unquote, emphatically, 50. Or 05. Sorry, 505DME. How are they not freaking out? How are they not freaking out? They're closer to the airport. That doesn't make sense. Make it make sense. I hate, I hate to keep using this <laughs> phrase. We will talk about it. I promise we will. He's trying to give me as much as I can. I am. Him. I'm trying not to give everything away immediately. I could easily give away everything right now, and I'm not going to. The air traffic controller acknowledged and replied, quote, maintain 11,500 report over Romeo, end quote. Thank you. Please turn away from the airport, please. The flight then replied that they would report being over Romeo. Brilliant. 
This, I would argue, is the biggest deviation and where the flight crew made themselves be known at fault. Okay. I hate to point the finger now, but that statement, that thing they just did, is where suddenly they were the ones that were very wrong. Oh, the fact that they were closer to the airport than they were before? Yeah. And they just stated that they would report over Romeo. We'll talk about it. For the next several minutes, the crew fumbled with the navigation computer and system trying to enter the Romeo fix into the navigation. While this occurred, the airspeed was reduced by 10 knots, from 240 knots to 230 knots. Pretty inconsequential. 12.43 p.m. and 29 seconds, the captain called the air traffic controller and stated, quote, tie 311, 14-DME, end quote. Now they're 14 miles DME. Okay, so now they're farther away from the airport. Yes. The air traffic controller replied, telling the flight to maintain 11,500 and report over Romeo. Okay. The flight replied, 11,500. Report Romeo, end quote. About 30 seconds later, a 36-second discussion was had between the controller and the other flight in the area in regard to the weather at the airport. At the end of said discussion, the flight crew from TIE 311 requested, quote, what is the visibility, end quote. The air traffic controller replied, quote, stand by for tower observation and visibility, end quote. Okay, reasonable. Things are changing. Yes. So this is the ACC. This is not the tower. So he's going to now call the tower and find out what the visibility is. Excellent. Four seconds later, the first officer asked the captain, and I state, asked the captain, quote, we are going north, end quote. The captain replied, quote, we will turn back soon, end quote. Confused yet. The flight crew then asked the air traffic controller, quote, request right turn back to the airfield, end quote. <laughs> the air traffic controller replied, quote, stand by for visibility, End quote, because that was what he was already working on. I told you this would get confusing, and I promised you that it would be. I promised you, and I was not kidding. They're like, have no idea where the f they are. 12.45 p.m. in nine seconds. The ground proximity warning system began sounding. Oh, oh, no, you don't know where you are. Oh, no. It gets worse. <laughs> oh, no. It Gets you're about to be so mad. Can I say it? Nope. Oh. The ground proximity warning system began sounding. Quote terrain terrain followed whoop, whoop. by followed by repeated quote. Whoop whoop pull up pull up, up. Yep. don't sink. Seven, don't think they weren't sinking. They no. weren't thinking. No. Seven seconds later, after the GPWS began sounding, which it didn't stop by the way, the Level change, quote-unquote, and engine speed increased. So level change is a call-out from the computer. It's an indication, but it's... I'm not going to say it's inconsequential, but it should have been a sign. You think? Uh-huh. The first officer then strongly suggested that they, quote, turn back, end quote. That is per the report. The captain then replied, quote, are you ready to be mad? It's false. End quote. What? <laughs> the f*** you mean it's false? You are surrounded by a mountain range. You should be freaking your out right now. Well. You should be pooping your pants. They had about six seconds to do so. And hold then on, they hit a f***ing mountain, didn't they? Hold on. Yes. I, I, have, I have the thing pulled up because this is one of those animations in Air Disasters where you, you watch it and you're like, oh, oh. Oh, 
Six seconds later, the aircraft struck the south side of a 16,000-foot mountain at 11,600 feet. At a speed of 240 knots, the aircraft struck a near-vertical rock wall and disintegrated on impact. Yep. Yep. All 113 on board perished immediately. Yeah, no shit. That said... It's false, my ass. The aircraft crashed 23.3 nautical miles north of Kathmandu. How did we find that out? North? Well, it actually turns out it took several days to locate the crash because they were searching to the south because they thought it was heading toward Romeo because they didn't have radar. And they said they were 14 DME away, right? So they were heading back toward Romeo. So they kind of knew where they wanted to search. The airplane was missing, literally missing, for several days. They had absolutely no idea until... Some remote villagers were like, hey. We heard a loud sound a few days ago, and we thought we should say something. But we don't have phones. And that was the moment where they looked at the map and went, I'm sorry, you live where? (laughs) I'm sorry, you live where? (laughs) Excuse me? They had to literally walk into the city, go find the investigators, and be like, we have something to say, because they didn't have phones or anything. And the investigators were just dumbfounded when they were like, uh, the airplane is where? Sure enough, later that day, they found it. And it was very hard to get to. Extremely hard. I mean, it hit a vertical walk. Yeah. they had three, In the Himalayas. Yeah. They had 3,000 feet of uh, incline to climb up um, without a trail to get to the wreckage, just to the base of the wreckage. And when they got there, of course, they found just very tiny pieces of airplane. Not much recognizable, not much to discern. And on the way, one of the investigators unfortunately actually perished from acute hypoxia, even though they weren't even that high up. The The accident happened at 11,600 feet. Yeah. He had other medical complications and he was also British? British. Yeah. And he came from an island. Oh. So, you know, from sea level. Rookie mistakes. So it happened I, fast. They, we were watching the Air Disasters episode, and they're like, yeah, he died at 11,000 feet. I'm like, those are rookie numbers. Yeah. Rookie numbers. Call me when you climb a 14er, which I still technically haven't done. I have not done. So I've done a 13er. Yeah. Made it to 13,000. Yes. Um. So yes, do ma'am. we have a map? Yes, we do. Oh, I don't. I do. It's in the report. I would like to see how the hell they did that. Can we wait until the investigators find out what happened? First and foremost, we'll let you talk about it. And then when you get to the part where you want to have it seen, you let me know. Because like, because like what? I know. (laughs) So is that all you got? That's it. Okay. So this investigation was performed by the Nepal Commission for the Accident Investigation with the assistance of the Canadian Transportation Safety Board. What? Yep. Why? Were there Canadians on board? Had to be, probably. I don't know. Uh, the French BEA, that one makes more sense, and the Aircraft Accident Investigation Committee of Thailand. The NTSB was also slightly involved, but not in a deep manner. These were the ones that were explicitly listed. Yes. The CVR was retrieved from the wreckage on August 4th, intact and without fire damage. Which is pretty remarkable. I mean, the fire damage, yeah, sure. The airplane literally just... Oh, the outer box was uh, damaged, but... Yes. The FDR was a little bit harder. It actually wasn't recognized as being the FDR at first because it was not in its signature orange box. The inner tape case was amidst the wreckage in the hangar when allegedly a family member was escorted in asking for a piece of the wreckage to help them feel closer to their loved one that they lost. And they pointed at the tape case. At that point, again, allegedly, an investigator realized that what they were pointing at was actually the FDR. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this just 
could not have been more serendipitous in the moment. They were like, they walked in to the area and they were like, we want that because we want something to remember our family member by. And the investigator had to be like, no. And thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because you literally just found the most important thing ever. Also, for this accident. Wanting a piece of the wreckage. I know. I know. I don't know. I'm surprised they would have let them in. Uh, somehow they just got in. I don't know. Then the, in the air crash investigations episode, they just depicted it as literally like they just walked up. Like it was an old lady walking in and like, I want that. Yeah. And they're like, mm, no. And somebody walked up to them and was like, can I also, help you? Leave? <laughs> <laughs> this is an open investigation. Yeah. And they had to turn them away and be like, no. And also, wow. Thank you. You found the FDR just sitting in the wreckage we already had. So, both recorders were sent to the TSB Engineering Laboratory in Ottawa for analysis on August 9th, and preliminary results were available two days later. Did you talk about how the wreckage came down? So, they used, okay, so. The Sherpas actually carried out any um, parts that the investigators identified, which means most of the airplane is probably still there, because they just identified certain things that they wanted, and the Sherpas would carry it down to a site where a helicopter could then carry it out by rope sling down to a hangar at the airport in Kathmandu, where they then had an area assembled for parts. Yep. So uh, before they got the recorder results back, investigators had ample time to begin their investigation. Interviews with air traffic control were performed, and they testified that the crew had spoken of a technical fault, but didn't provide any details on it. Literally no idea what was wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. So investigators took a look at the maintenance records to see if this may have been a recurring issue. They found that the XP-205 bus had recently been having issues and is related to the navigation systems. Oh, God. Mayhaps that could be why they ended up north of the airport instead of south. This turned out to not be the case, as if it had caused an error, it would have caused all sorts of warnings and alarms that were not, in fact, heard on the CBR. But what was, was crucial. Mm-hmm. The analysis henceforth was garnered from the CBR and FDR combined, as often is. The first sign of trouble was when the crew reached out to air traffic control to get clearance to descend. And again. And again. In total, the first officer reached out three times with no response. So the captain began to get frustrated. And so he tried calling ATC again and again. And was finally successful on his third call. Investigators were unable to determine why the ACC controller apparently did not hear the transmissions, but it did not technically affect the flight other than putting a bad taste in their mouth and making the captain get frustrated. This was a recurring theme, and this was primarily determined mostly to be due to the fact that the airport is in the Himalayas. Yeah, so there's interference because of the mountains. So they weren't hearing each other often because... So it explains a little bit of why, and I saved some of this, but it explains a little bit of why... They were having so many issues communicating with one another because actually a lot of the communications that I said came through either broken, not heard, or not understood. But there's also a little bit of language barrier, and there was also just and I'll get more into that a lack of picture in the head. So they continued their descent normally, pretty relaxed, and then air traffic control reached out that the weather at the airport was deteriorating, which apparently I had a really hard time typing today. And visibility had reduced to 1.5 kilometers on their approach, so the controller changed their approach to now land on runway 20. Same runway, technically, but opposite direction. 
The captain quickly instructed the first officer to request runway 02 since it was a straightened path and didn't require circling, but the request was denied due to poor visibility and heavy rain south of the airport. Given the limited visibility and requirement to circle, the captain stated that they can't make it, so he asked the first officer to calculate the required fuel to make it to their alternate airport of Calcutta. But the first officer didn't answer? Yep. He, he instead replied that they had enough to get to Bangkok, which was further than Calcutta, inferring that they could indeed make it to C- Calcutta. Then the captain asked, Calcutta, how much? showing that he didn't get the answer he was looking for, and he sighed, indicating his growing frustration with the first officer. The captain resumed his approach planning and briefed the first officer on the circling limits, in so doing, stating the wrong minimum descent altitude, or MDA. The wrong one? Yeah. The wrong one. He's off by 450 feet. Ultimately, was he not looking at the chart? Dude, I don't know. They were, but it was just, I don't know. That was ultimately inconsequential. Yeah, that part didn't really matter, although it just kind of showed it how... It could have mattered. It could have. Well, it could have, and it also just... Mostly what it did was show that they were... Breaking down already. CRM was gone. The This briefing was interrupted when they reported passing the Romeo fix, at which point they were told to expect the Sierra approach and call at 25 DME. The captain said he would follow Sierra at 10 DME after questioning the 25 DME call. The captain continued on the approach briefing and stated, we can descend to 10,500 if we are on radial 022, which is incorrect as the radial used for the approach is actually 202, but investigators attribute this to a slip of the tongue. After completing the briefing, the captain asked the first officer to request the weather, and the ATC responded that runway 02 was now also available and again requested that the flight report at 25 DME. The first officer responded to ATC and confirmed their request to report, but did not confirm the now available runway. But the captain noticed this detail and proceeded to take over radio communication to confirm what he thought he had heard, as well as repeated his still unanswered question of surface conditions. ATC didn't answer either question and instead requested their distance from the airport. The captain responded 25 DME and again requested visibility. Air traffic control responded that the flight was to contact the tower controller for the weather information. The captain slowed the aircraft to below 240 knots indicated and called for slat extension. They switched to tower control and were cleared for the serial approach to runway 02 and were given a visibility report of 2,500 meters. The flaps and slats were selected as 1515 by the first officer, and he was then instructed to cross-check the altitudes on the chart. They were about 18 nautical miles out when an ECAM chime was heard, indicating that the torque limiter had stopped and held the flaps short of the selected 15-degree position due to increased system friction. This was most likely the technical fault the crew had reported to air traffic control. The Thai Airways A310 emergency checklist doesn't give the crew a whole lot to work with for a flap fault, but gave them advice on the effects of landing with less than full flaps. Great, how the hell do we fix it? The captain continued to get frustrated, knowing he needed full flaps and slats to continue such a steep approach. If the flaps don't work... Gotta gotta go. Yep, gotta divert. Yep. If the flaps don't fit, you must acquit. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Which just means get the hell out of there. Yeah. GTFO. The crew worked seemingly together for once. Briefly. To cycle the system and were able to clear the fault, but not before requesting clearance to maintain 10,500 and return to Calcutta due to technical. Once the issue was cleared, the captain decided to attempt the Sierra approach again while they were 12 DME from the VOR, but now they're too high and too close to continue a straight-in approach. So the captain radioed the controller to request a left turn to rejoin the Sierra approach. 
saying that all was normal and they were requesting a left turn back to Waypoint Romeo. The controller responded, clear Sierra approach, report 10 DME, leaving 9500. At this point, they were 11 miles south, and though a little unclear, the crew took this as clearance to continue the approach, to continue the approach, which is not what they asked. No. What the controller meant was for the flight to proceed to the initial approach point of 16 DME and fly the 202 radial inbound. The crew could have gotten to the 16 DME fix however they wanted. Turn left, turn right, whatever. Just go back to 16 DME and then return to the approach. Because they didn't have radar, they were just literally telling them, like, you can start the approach again, do it how you want. But that wasn't very clearly conveyed. No, the communication was not great. Agreed. Alternatively, the crew also could have turned left at the Sierra fix and joined the published holding pattern back towards the runway. The crew did neither. Instead, the captain told air traffic control they could not land at this time and wanted to turn left back to Romeo. They were still on a heading of 020 at the time. In total, the captain asked the tower controller for clearance to turn to the left four separate times between 11.5 and 7 DME. At about five and a half miles, the captain said, albeit paraphrasedly, F*** it, I'm turning to the right. Yeah. And began doing so as well as climbing. This lines up with the missed approach procedure, actually, for one-way 02, which is also a turn to the right, and re-intercepted the 202 Radio 4 approach. The investigators deemed this a reasonable choice. They weren't getting an answer. Okay, do a missed approach. At this point, the controller was unable to provide heading vectors or approval for turns because he did not have radar equipment at his disposal. Which, for such a bad, like, dangerous airport, I feel like that's not great. Guess what, James? <laughs> Crews are expected to provide their own terrain clearance. There is evidence to show that the controller had not heard the flight's transmission regarding the right turn, but understood that they were heading back to Romeo at 10,500 feet. Investigators point out it was probably really confusing to the controller why the captain wanted to go all the way the hell back to Romeo. Doing so was 41 miles away from the airport. Yeah, it didn't seem very practical to them. They were like, "That's that's what you want? That." And you had to fly the wrong way through a one-way airway. Mm-hmm. Say that five times fast. Right. That's like driving the wrong way on the highway. Yeah, for 41 miles before you decide to turn around. Mm. Part of what's happening here, too, is that Romeo isn't even really on... The, the approach. The approach or the tower controller's like info set. It's not what he knows of. So the Thai Airways approach chart in particular, makes Romeo look like the beginning of the approach, but it's, it's not. not. Oh. So the tower controller's like, why the fuck do you want to go all the way back there? I mean, I guess. Sure. I... Like, that's a long-ass approach. The 16 DME makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there's not a waypoint there. That's why Sierra keeps getting mentioned over and over, is because... Why don't you just go back to Sierra? To the beginning of the Sierra approach, yeah. Right. Go to the Sierra Waypoint, turn Dif- around, and go back. Right. Differing information they had. So, because the tower controller is so befuddled over why the hell they want to go back to Romeo, that is what contributed to the lack of response from the tower controller. Mm-hmm. And the tower controller is like, what do you want to do? And why? which also increased the captain's frustration. You can clearly tell the captain's, like, not having it. The captain keeps taking over comms. The captain is doing everything. everything. Which might be an issue. <laughs> Which, you know what's weird is we talk about this a lot with captains that have 
first officers that don't know what they're doing, but this first officer's older and has more hours than the captain does. Yes. So you remember how, like, um, when Nick was reading the personnel file? Okay, so maybe this is the point at which I bring up. So, yes, the first officer is older. However, in his personnel file, he was marked as not eligible for promotion. By the airline. He was not eligible to become a captain. Probably due to some really bad... Like failing something. Not necessarily. They the airline had a reputation for judging character and and pilotship and having basically a test, and then they would permanently mark your file as either eligible to become captain someday or not. Which but if you're told early in your career that you're not eligible for promotion, you're only gonna fulfill your own prophecy. You're like, oh, I must be dumb because I can't ever be captain, so I guess I'll just be first officer. That doesn't mean you're And I'm not a good pilot because I'm a first officer only, and that's what they told me. That's so dumb, though. Isn't it? What year did this happen again? 92. 92. So. The airline, that was a bad practice on the airline's part. That's horrible because that just promotes bad crew resource management. Yes. Yes. Like, really bad. And the investigators thought so, too. They were like, why are you telling them that? Like. That's such bad. Also, you can't a bad idea. You can't keep that judgment without evaluation. Right. You can say like at this time, currently ineligible. Yeah, it's one thing to say like, oh, didn't pass. Now we'll attempt again. Yeah. Another time, but to mark them permanently and say, nope, you're a first officer for life. So that that's is- also a contributing factor. And not yeah. letting the first officer do the duties of the first officer. Like, I don't understand. Clearly, there's not good rapport between these two pilots. No. And this started to really break down when it came to the navigation system, which I'm sure well, you'll get to. That's the part where I'm like, hey, they went over this for two pages. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so the captain began their climbing right turn without informing the controller of their intended level off attitude, just stating they were climbing. And the controller responded and reiterated that they needed to report at 16 DME and leaving 10,500 for the Sierra approach. In the cockpit, the captain said, it's cleared, it's okay now, and instructed the first officer to read back the controller's transmission, which the first officer had trouble doing. And the controller had difficulty in understanding the first officer's difficulty and stated, report at 10 DME, leaving the 9,500 feet, which the first officer repeated the new apparent instructions which the controller confirmed. So everyone's confused, but now we're all on the same page, right? Sure. The captain took over comms again. Dude. <laughs> yeah. And restated that they could not make their approach now and that they were turning right and climbing to 18,000 feet to start their approach again. The controller responded, Roger, uh, stand by for the time being, maintain 11,500. And appears that the crew took Roger as acceptance of their declared action. Anyway, so the captain is doing a climbing right turn, intending to level off at 18,000 feet. And they should have leveled out at heading 200, opposite of the runway, right? Well, they turned past 045, then 130, then 290, and all the way back to 025 degrees. They did a 360. I told you they did a circle! I told you! Can I show it? Yes. They turned in a circle! This is where they entered the approach. They did this whole loop, and then they just kept going. And the airport's right here. What? So they were coming in for the approach to the the runway. They just kept turning, 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 went right past the airport and just kept going. So they were 14 DME north of the airport, not south, where they were going to have to go to start their approach again. And that's what they never clarified. Which makes Because they didn't know. Why they were turning and then right. eventually were closer to the airport and then farther away. Yep. Right. 
There's a whole set of discussions so we'll have in the second half. So how the hell do you screw that up? Well, you don't look at your freaking heading that entire time? Uh, the crew was very busy during that turn, trying to get clearance for another approach. This caused a lot of unnecessary radio communication, which was then not clearly understood by um anyone. No. It is obvious from the CVR that the crew didn't believe that they had a valid approach clearance. Then they were told of conflicting traffic and to instead level off at 13,000 feet. The captain was inc- getting increasingly frustrated and asked the controller for the position of the other traffic as he was told that the other flight was at flight level 150. But he was instead told to go back to 11,500 from 13,000. This likely led the captain to perceive that the controller was not providing effective or helpful control. You think? You can tell he's so frustrated. This controller had only been working for nine months. Oh, he was dude. new. He was a baby controller. He Not, was new. Okay, he was like a toddler controller. He wasn't yeah, a baby he wasn't baby. Baby. Yeah, he was new. But the controller knew that if they were flying south, eleven thousand five hundred feet was more than adequate terrain clearance for the eight to nine thousand foot mountains. The controller understood that the flight would proceed to Romeo as requested, albeit stupidly, and relied on them for position reports. Now. When the crew rolled out to heading 025, a north-northeasterly direction, they were still south of the airport and had ample terrain clearance at their altitude of 11,500. They continued on that heading for 5.6 minutes. Wow. Which is a lot when you're traveling 240 knots. Ample time to realize and correct their path. There was no evidence of a malfunction in any navigation systems, which is evidenced by the fact that the first officer realized that they were flying north about 30 seconds before impact. It was found, however, that the first officer was having trouble inputting the Romeo fix as a waypoint into the flight management system. An investigator spent several pages describing this, but I'm getting long-winded here. And I got tired writing. So To, to, to sum it up, the, the whole thing with the navigation system, they were trying to enter Romeo, which is a very generic thing. Romeo isn't just one single point on the planet. What they were trying to get to was Romeo 27, which is 27 DME from something. But that's why it was marked as Romeo 27. They were inputting it incorrectly because they were just putting in Romeo, which was also part of the confusion when they were talking to the controllers. They were like, what are you talking about, Romeo? Like the, the, the tower controllers too, like Romeo is so far away. It's not even in their control area. They don't care about Romeo. They, Vaguely know it exists, and especially a new controller, he's like, what are you even... That's why he didn't even reply to the Romeo thing. Because he was like, just start your approach over. I don't know what you're asking. He didn't know. So he was just telling him, start your approach over. I don't care. Just start it over. And the way it was depicted in the Air Disasters episode, which may or may not be correct, given that I didn't want to read through the several pages of them explaining the flight management system, please don't blame me for that. It was really long. It was. But they depicted it as the... Officer, the first officer was having issues because it was telling him to turn all the way around, which, you mm-hmm. know, should have been it a sign. It was. <laughs> and then the screen would just go blank. Amazing. Yeah. Again, not sure if that's 100% sure if that's what actually happened because this was a really long analysis and I have a full-time job. Sorry. So. So the- basically they're so focused on this and the radio communications and the fact that there's visibility outside. Mm-hmm. They didn't see the mountain. Right. So one of the faults with some of these navigation systems, and it actually will still depict this kind of to this day, and this is why, yes, it should have been a sign, but the investigators found they actually, when they looked at the FDR data, yeah, 
he did enter it correctly at one point. And they didn't believe it because it's said to loop around. Normally, if it's anywhere within basically 180 degree, it's not quite 180, it's like 160 or something like that, degree purview in front of the airplane, then a line will show up directing you toward that. You know, you might have like a little curve telling you to turn toward a certain direction and then head that way, but their curve was a full U, which then means they weren't seeing anything in front of them on that display. So they were thinking, why is it just telling me to do a literal like 360, like a loop? Like it's obviously not picking up the right 180. thing. 180. Yeah, a one. well, no, they thought it was telling them to do oh. just 360s. And they were like, why would I do that? They didn't realize what it was telling them to do was to go 180 degrees the other way back to Romeo. Until. Yeah. Are we going north? The other big issue. Which, by the way, they said that and then they were like, nothing was triggered in the captain's mind of like, oh, shit, we're going the wrong way. It was. He already thinks the first officer's incompetent. Well, well, remember the captain asked, oh, yeah, we're going to turn back soon. He knew where they were. I don't know that he did. He, He knew what course they were on and he knew they weren't near Romeo. He didn't know exactly where they were in space, but he knew that they were heading north, which is why he was like, well, yeah, we're going to turn back soon. I thought he meant that they were going to turn back to line up with the approach. No, he was thinking they were going to turn back to Romeo. I don't think we can really know what he meant. No, but by the same token, investigators found something interesting, which will come up in the second part here in the findings. But the FAA actually backed them up on this. The technical systems that they use didn't have markings of N, S, E, and W for north, south, east, and west, or even northeast, or northwest, or southeast, or southwest. None of that. It just had the heading numbers, which, to the credit, is obviously much more accurate than a north, south, east, west, but investigators found that actually without those markings, questions like, are we going north, come up a lot in aviation when you're lost, because they were in the clouds. So... Investigators, like, they found that, and the FAA was like, yeah, that's actually a good point. <laughs> you should do like, something about that, that, avionics manufacturers. They're like, you should definitely fix that and make it so that there are even just a small marking when you're pointing, like, north or east with just a little N or an E so that you kind of have a general idea what direction you're heading, even if you're not paying attention to the numbers, because the numbers can get confusing. So that was an interesting thing, too. They kind of had this idea that maybe the crew wasn't paying attention to the numbers because they weren't associating a numbers with a direction. They were just flying in space. Like they, they were trying Even though that's to basic navigation. Yeah. They were trying to figure out the, com- the computer, the FMS and how to get Romeo program, Romeo 27 programmed to fly back to Romeo where they could have done a million other things instead of doing that and wasting time. And so they weren't, quote unquote, flying an airplane. Nope. Flying 101. Or at least not paying attention to where they were going. Right. And if they at least maybe had a big N, they might have seen just the letter and associated the direction that they were heading more so than trying to pay attention to the numbers. Yeah. I I would say having some sort of compass is helpful. Yes. Me being a visual person, numbers mean nothing. Yeah. Letters help. Yes. So that's one thing that has changed. Anyways. That's all I got. Okay. That was a nice, really long first half. Yeah. Uh, first three quarter, I'm going to say. Because <laughs> the second part ain't going to be that long. Thank God. Okay. Brick break. Brick break. Brick break. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, we're back. We obviously had quite the sizable first part of this. I promise the second part is not going to be that long, even though there were 54 findings, which is a lot. I am not doing the majority of those. There was also like 18 pages of recommendations, and I ain't doing that many. I'm only doing some of the really important ones, and then we're going to talk about what actually changed, because that was probably more important than anything I recommended, but we'll talk about it. All right, for findings. They found that company procedures and aerodynamic performance considerations require that full slats and flaps configuration be achieved by the 13 DME point for the Sierra VOR DME approach to Kathmandu Airport. So they were way behind the curve when they were trying to do this approach. They needed to be at full flaps and slats by the time they were 13 DME, and they were not even close. So they were valid in wanting to do the approach again, but... That wasn't... In question. No. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about why this was totally messed up. <laughs> I Everything mean, else obviously. that happened after that, however. Yeah, yeah. They found that the visibility at the airport was below the operator's limit of 3,000 meters, or three kilometers, as the approach was commenced. Continuing the, the approach with such visibility until reaching the outer marker was permitted by the company Flight Operations Manual. They were not allowed to do the landing at 3,000 meters or less of visibility. There was only 2,500. Hey, maybe that's part of the reason they crashed. Weird. They shouldn't have even tried. No. They shouldn't have even tried. They should have just gone to Calcutta. That is the the, the whole of this. I mean, right from the get-go, their decision to divert should have been immediate. What Do you know what minimums is now? Or is that no. airline specific? It's it's usually airline specific, aircraft specific, airport specific. Everything is, is so I know, many but factors. I was wondering if you knew airport specific. No, I don't have a clue. They have newer systems. There's different things that can help with this now to be a little more precise, but no, I don't know. They found that the flight profile was proceeding normally until a slat slash flap selection of fifteen fifteen was attempted, at which time a flap fault occurred. They found that, and this is interesting, I know you didn't really talk about this, because this was a key point, actually, was why did the fault Why did the fault happen? Why did the flaps... I mean, I talked about that a little bit. ...not work? The torque well, limiter? It w- yeah, the torque there, limiter. like, an electrical thing or whatever going on? Well, it's a on? torque limiter. So, the jacks, the screw jack, not jack screw, the screw jack... What's the difference? I don't know. Torque limiter <laughs> actuation... A jack <laughs> the, a jack that's screw. what they put in here. The screw jack torque limiter actuator. It said it's somewhere else. Jack screw. I think I, you're full of. That's it says right here. Screw jack. Twice in the same sentence. And if you let me read the sentence, no. <laughs> it's finding six. Your mom. That does say screw jack. It does. <laughs> the screw jack torque limiter actuation was likely caused by increased screw jack system friction aggravated by the momentary extension of the right wing spoilers. Oh, yeah, I did definitely glance over that. I did read that. Yeah, I know. 100%. So what does that actually mean? So what they're saying is when the spoilers on the right wing actually went up for a moment, which happens actually 
in tandem with the ailerons. It's not because they extended the speed brakes. It's because they're used sometimes in to turning. Supplement. Yeah, to supplement the ailerons in turning the aircraft. So when the airplane had a right turn while they were trying to extend flaps, because that did happen, the right side spoilers going up meant that the... The flaps said no. The flaps basically, it put too much friction on the screw jack or jack screw or whatever you want to call it. Of English the is hard. Because force, because physics, because that's how things work. Whatever. They found the airflow caused friction on the jack screw screw jack. Jack screw jack. <laughs> <laughs> and so it didn't, the flaps wouldn't extend properly. This became a known thing about the A310 and they managed to find ways to fix that. But that was an interesting little tidbit. Because obviously it was important. It was like, why did that cause them to miss the whole approach in the first place? Even though it was an approach they shouldn't have been attempting because the visibility was too low. They found that once the flat fault was rectified, 11 minutes prior to impact, the crew decided that the flight could continue to Kathmandu, but the aircraft was too high and too close to the airport to achieve the required approach profile, and the straight-in approach could not be continued. Then comes the whole big giant thing, which I'm only going to cover a couple of findings, but they cover this in big depth about Romeo and their attempts to go to Romeo and everything having to do with resetting the approach and how wrong they were. This is why I giggled really hard earlier when I said, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I think you probably have something to do with it. (laughs) They found that the flight crew continued to ask for a clearance to Romeo specifying a left turn direction, but they did not receive a clearance satisfactory to them, nor did they initially receive any other further instructions. Why didn't they receive permission to make a left turn to Romeo? Because everyone wants to know why the hell they want to go back to Romeo. That's part of it, but actually they have a much better point than that. I'll read this next finding and then we'll talk about it. They found that the crew of TIE 311 did not perceive that the flight had a valid clearance for a new Sierra approach, but understood that they were to continue their present approach. We talked about this, but the way that the air traffic controller told him, you're cleared for the Sierra approach, report 16 DMA at 9,500 or 10,500, I don't remember. It, the whole thing with that was that was the air traffic controller telling him, you go there, you go back to the beginning of the approach, you do it however you want. Yeah. They didn't know that. They didn't understand that. Yeah, because kept, it was not clear at They all. kept asking for left turn, right turn, and it turns out <laughs> the air traffic control. Yeah, I know. If the air traffic controllers in and around Kathmandu, not having radar. Have no idea what's happening. Actually, more specifically than that, are not allowed to give vectors, which means they're not allowed to give right or left turns. Oh. Because they can't see traffic. Do pilots which know makes that? sense. It was on the charts. That's fine. That's why there's a holding pattern in there, because they were supposed to go to a holding pattern, and then they were supposed to get instructions to restart the approach, which is all the instructions. That's honestly what they should have done. Which is all that the ATC is instructed to do. It's all that they're taught to give them. They're not taught to give them left and right turns because they're not allowed to, because it's not up to them about obstacles or traffic avoidance. They don't know where you are. Right. They just know in a general idea right, of they have where a you general, are from the airport. They have a general picture in their head. Well, and we'll talk about and that, And even too. that was screwed up. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in depth because that is actually a very key thing, too. They kept reporting DME, and they never talked about direction radi- radials. 
Which I was the helped. Which radio, was, radio are you on? Right. It would have fixed the whole thing as well. There are like eight times that they could have fixed this whole situation. First and foremost, by diverting. But <laughs> still hold to that one. But there was so many times they could have fixed this. And neither the air traffic controllers nor the crew ever talked about radials, which didn't help them. Neither one of them tried to help themselves, the air traffic controllers nor the flight crew. Which to me is the part that was so infuriating. It was like, I mean, we keep talking about distance, but that's all we're talking about. You don't know where in distance you are in space. Distance is just one axis. Anyways, skipping a handful. They found that the crew continued the right turn and traveled toward the north-northeast, which was opposite to the direction to the Romeo fix. They found that at some point in the flight from the latter portions of the 360-degree turn to the right the crew became unaware of where the flight was proceeding. They found that the ACC controller issued another valid clearance to Romeo. The clearance was acknowledged by TIE 311. Again, they were given clearance several times later on to proceed to Romeo, especially by the ACC because it was within his control area. And they never used that as a right to go there because they were trying to put it in the navigation system, so they weren't making turns to actually proceed to Romeo, having no idea where they were in space, compared to Romeo, I should say. And two, because they weren't given a direction, a left turn or a right turn, to head to Romeo, because they're not allowed to give vectors, mm-hmm. the captain kept, here it is, assuming <laughs> Boo. that he still didn't have actual clearance to go to Romeo, which is why they had to state specifically that he was given valid clearance to go to Romeo per what the air traffic controllers had. That's a whole thing. And here we go. They found that neither the ACC controller nor the TIE 311 captain succeeded in communicating that the flight's progress was not in accordance with its clearance when the aircraft was five miles north of the Kathmandu VOR. They weren't communicating about where, just distance. Again, that's the problem. They found that because of the mountainous terrain, the published safe altitude within 25 miles north of Kathmandu Airport is flight level 210, or 21,000 feet, which was approximately 9,500 feet higher than the altitude of the aircraft. They found that when the aircraft was north of the airport, the flight was communicating with the area control center, and thus its bearing from the airport was not indicated on the VHF or DF equipment. Now, I know you're asking, what is that? The VHF DF is the only piece of equipment that gave any indication about where an airplane was in space to any controller, and only the ACC had that, and it was only one piece of equipment at the airport that was reachable by the ACC. However, it wasn't used to project north, usually on the south end of the airport, because that's where pretty much every airplane comes from. So that's what they're stating here is they were communicating with the airplane, but the communications weren't proper and they didn't have any indication of where the airplane was. Great. Because that equipment didn't work there. They found that when when requesting the aircraft's position, the area controller center and tower controllers only asked for distance from the VOR, but not radial information. Thus, the aircraft position was not determined. They found when transmitting the aircraft's position, the crew of TIE 311 gave only distance from the VOR DME, not the radial, and thus the flight's geographical location was never passed to the ACC or the tower controller. Everyone's at fault. Everyone sucks. 
It's now, of course, a required piece of information when you're doing a VORDME, which is still not very common anymore. So no, take we that have a, GPS. Right, take everything with a grain of salt. They were using GPS, but they weren't using it properly. They found that at least some of the crew's efforts to input the Romeo fix and the Samara NDB on the flight management system appeared to be successful, but the crew did not accept the information for unknown reasons. The aircraft was not turned to the south-southwest toward the Romeo fix. Again, they were getting like indications to do a hard left turn around to go to Romeo, and they were just like, no, nope, that doesn't look right. Come on. They found that the crew's use of the flight management system for navigation was uncoordinated and may have led to confusing system outputs, thus reducing the crew's ability to conduct effective navigation problem solving. Duh. They were too focused on one system and not actually paying attention to flying the airplane, which is pretty much what that says in a summed up version. They found that it is likely that the co-pilot realized that the aircraft was in a potentially dangerous flight situation approximately 30 seconds. Before the terrain impact. That was the point where he went, we're going north? We're going north? The captain's like, oh, we'll turn around. No, this, you aren't. I love the way that they put this in the next two findings, but they found that the, the co-pilot communicated his concern in a mitigated manner. They found that the intent of the communication may not have been understood by the captain, perhaps because the mitigated style of the communication chosen by the co-pilot or because the captain misinterpreted the comment or possibly for both of these reasons. He he really should have been like, why are we going north? We're not supposed to be going north. Where are we? Where are we? And that was only 30 seconds before they hit. Would they have had time to turn around? Here's the worst part. They found that the crew's response to the ground proximity warning system warning was not in accordance with the manufacturer's procedures. So per Airbus. However. What? However. It's known to have false. We'll get there. Nope. We found that the op- they found that the operator's procedures for responding to the GPWS did not provide sufficient guidance to the crew. So what? for one, Thai Airways didn't give them enough like, hey, when the ground proximity warning system goes off, do something. React immediately. I'm sorry, but you have to do something no matter what. They found that the captain assessed the GPWS warning as false. No duh. They found that because of the topography near the accident site, the aircraft performance limitations, impact with terrain likely could not have been avoided even if the crew had reacted instantly to the EGPWS. To the, to the GPWS warning. It wasn't an EGPWS, otherwise they would have had more time, which is the problem here. So they actually wouldn't have been able to get themselves out of the situation in the time that they had. They were traveling 240 knots at a wall and they had less than 30 seconds. I don't know. It started going off only like, I don't remember. 17 seconds. Yeah, that's right. 17 seconds before they hit the wall. And mind you, they had a lot of distance up. They would have had to climb. Those mountains were 20,000 feet. Right. Vertically. Well, the mountain that they impacted directly, they still would have had to go up. I don't remember. I think it was like 8,000 or 7,000 feet or something like that in order to clear it vertically, which you just can't do. That quickly. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's they not likely. They didn't have time to turn around either. And there was no time to turn. None. They were also in a valley. It was kind of trapped. By the time they would have turned, they would have hit something. So. They they boxed themselves in. Pretty much. They found that the aircraft navigation systems were operating sufficiently to allow effective navigation. So the systems were fine. They just weren't using them properly. They found that during the approach, the crew's workload was increased because of the communication difficulties between them and the air traffic control agencies. And, and with no shit. Yep. And with the other aircraft on approach, due to the radio clarity, language difficulties, and the use of non-standard phraseology. 
So, by the way, no one here speaks English as their first language. No. And they also don't speak each other's language, which was great. Which is why you're supposed to know English for aviation. So yes. Everyone can speak the same language. And they were using it, but they were using it very poorly. All of them were using it very poorly. It was not going well. This communication was not working. They found that from the first contact with the ACC controller after the 360-degree turn until the co-pilot mentioned the north direction, the TIE 311 crew never discussed the aircraft's flight path. Which is a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. They just ignored where they were going. They were trying to focus on where they wanted to be. They found that there was no indication that the crew had received simulator training for Kathmandu, even though Kathmandu is identified by the operator as an airport with special operational considerations, which led to increased workload for the crew when confronted with discontinued approach. This was important because even though both crew members actually had a lot of experience flying in and out of Kathmandu, mm-hmm. they I had think, never... I think each of them had at least a dozen. Yeah, they said that the first officer had done it like 14 times mm-hmm. in six months. So both crew had flown in and out of Kathmandu a lot. They were actually not new to the airport or the operations there. However, they had never had to deal with a missed approach so poorly. So yep. that was a whole thing. They found that the search following the accident was hampered by the expectation that the aircraft was operating south of the airport, by weather difficulties at the time of the search, and by an absence of immediate witness information. The witnesses didn't come forward for a while because they didn't have phones. And they had to climb. Right. A walk. Yep. And that's all I'm going to read. Okay. Cause. The probable causes of the accident were Flight 311's flight crew's management of the aircraft flight path wherein the flight proceeded in a northerly direction which was opposite to the cleared point Romeo to the south. Ineffective radio communication between the area control center controller and the flight crew which allowed the flight to continue in the wrong direction in that the crew never provided the aircraft's VOR radio when stating DME and the controller never solicited this information and thus the aircraft's position was not transmitted at any time and ineffective cockpit crew coordination by flight 311 crew in conducting flight navigation duties. Contributing factors were the misleading depiction of Romeo on the operator's approach chart used by the flight crew. A flat fault, although corrected, required that the initial approach be discontinued. And the radio communication difficulties between the crew and the air traffic controllers that stemmed from language difficulties and ineffective discussion of apparent unresolved problems. Mm -hmm. So, before we proceed any further, Mm -hmm. it is very much worth noting that something very important happened 59 days after this accident. Yep. The deadliest crash in Nepalese history by Pakistan Airlines Flight 268, which crashed on approach to Kathmandu, of course, due to lack of radar, getting lost, and controlled flight into terrain. Sound familiar? So, needless to say, the biggest thing they fixed was radar. Was radar in Kathmandu. They were like, I think we have a problem. And we should provide a solution. We need to fix that. To quote from Kathmandu Airport's Wikipedia page, in 1997, airport surveillance radar and secondary surveillance radar came into operation. The installation of radar surveillance was proposed by Japan. Japan was like, let me help you with that. (laughs) Japan's like, hold my beer. Yeah. (laughs) Let me show you how it's done. Hold my sake. You need this. You need this now. I'm going to help. Was proposed by Japan in 1994 following the crash of Thai Airways Flight 311 and Pakistan International Airlines Flight 268 in 1992, which claimed the lives of 280 people altogether, including 17 high-level Japanese diplomats. That's why. Yeah. On September 9th, 1998, Prime Minister, that's a name, officially inaugurated the radars. (laughs) Yes, that. 
So, if you want to know when they were implemented, yeah. late 90s. That happened. So needless to say, that also changed the way they do air traffic control in Kathmandu vastly. Yes. That does not mean they haven't had accidents, because they have, obviously. They're in the Himalayas. Yes, and also there's just been bad piloting around there. Fun fact. that happens. Fun fact. In 2020, the runway was extended. Yes, it was. It is now almost 11,000 feet. They do that because... Rookie numbers. Yeah, well, but they do that because bigger carriers want to be flying bigger birds, and they need to carry a lot of fuel, so it requires a lot of takeoff. Wait. Qatar Airways being the primary. Qatar Airways flying to Qatar, of course. Doha. No, really? Yeah. Flying A330s in and out of there, which they get 330s. Nepal Airlines has a 330. But the helipad can handle 17 helicopters. Yeah, because they go up into the Himalayas like crazy there. I mean, I know why. That's just a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Anyways. A lot, a lot, a lot. For the recommendations. Again, there's a lot of pages of recommendations. I am not doing most of this because, again, we're talking about what really changed and what was important. But let me read a few of these, and then we'll talk about what the rest of the things that changed. Sorry, I wanted to bring that one up just because it impacted the Pakistan, or the Pakistan flight impacted, you know what I mean. Yes. Recommended to the Department of Aviation of Thailand. They recommended review efforts by Thai International, the airline, in the area of cockpit resource management, or crew resource management, CRM. Fix it. Fix it. Fix, fix it. it. Fix it. <laughs> Can't it's reiterate bad. it. bad. Fix it. This is 92. It already existed. Fix it. We have the technology. Yes. They recommend ensuring that all Thai international pilots are reminded of the procedures to be followed when operating in a non-radar controlled terminal area. In other words, don't expect vectors. Cut it out. Because that costs you so much time and energy and costs you to lose where you were. That was the captain's fault. Third and throw. They recommend ensuring that appropriate training or information letters are used to emphasize to Thai international pilots the importance of determining and adhering to the minimum altitude provisions of approaches, particularly at airports with important terrain considerations, i.e. the most important one in the world with terrain considerations, which is Kathmandu. Yeah, there's mountains. You might want to make side. sure you know where you are and right. how high you need to be. Pretty much every single major accident that's happened there, and I'm not going to say that, a lot of the major accidents that have happened in Kathmandu are sea fit. A lot. A lot. Now, I can think of two relatively recent ones that were not, i.e. U.S. Bangla, which was just yes. bad piloting, and the ATR crash. Yeah. Recently. Recently, 2019. Oh, that wasn't even 2019. That was last year. The, the video with the engine shut down. I thought that was Picara. Maybe it was because it ain't on the okay, Kathmandu one. Well, whatever the case, there was also, yeah, there was also that ATR though. The one you're talking about that one skid off the runway. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. Runway overrun, runway overrun, runway overrun. Why do you think they extended the runway? That's a whole nother reason. Um, Bangla to 11. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what you classify that as. I don't know. Show, runway overrun, bird strike, Ooh, mm-hmm. vulture. Didn't we talk about vultures can go that high? Vultures can go super high. Yeah. We, well, we had that conversation. When well, we this covered. vulture killed 19 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we we talked about, about, about that. About big birds going that high? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When we covered the, the miracle in the Hudson. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Beechcraft sea. Mm-hmm. One survivor. Nope, never mind. Died and route to the hospital. <laughs> Sea fit in heavy rain. Hijacking. Oh, that's spicy. Yeah. Runway overrun. 
colliding with communication tower. See fit. <laughs> see, see, Fio. <laughs> Controlled flight into obstacle. <laughs> see fit. Struck airfield perimeter fence. By overrunning? <laughs> I don't know. Problems yeah. getting airborne. Fun. See That's fit. A lot. See fit. Runway overrun. So. Cool. That airport. It has problems. It's dangerous. You seen wherever it is? This is why we don't fly to Kathmandu. We will someday. I don't know about that. I want to go see the Himalayas, and that's the place to do it. Mm. Sorry. It's, you don't think, there's literally dozens of flights in and out of there a day, including with major characters. What if we safe it into a mountain, Nick? It won't. (laughs) That's why they fixed this stuff. The most recent issue was in May 2022, a Singapore Airlines plane had a tail strike while landing. Oh, whoop-de-frickin-do. Everyone was fine. However, there was a lot of damage to That's the aircraft. That's called Tuesday. <laughs> That's called Tuesday. <laughs> no! Tail strikes? That's called Tuesday. Not this tail strike. It's ugly. That's called Tuesday. That happens around the world every day. Not this bad. Yeah, that bad. You just don't hear about it most of the time. They just slap a doubler plate on that bitch and they say, let's go. Not even. They rip, the, they rip the skin off them. They will put a whole new skin on them. The incident aircraft did not have a tail strike warning indication system. Nice. So it just kept flying. I think I remember that. That's dangerous. Okay. That I love how the Wikipedia tail. page said that there was a ton of damage and they're like, no, there was a bumper. Yeah, yeah. Everything was fine. The pilot it? monitoring felt a light thud. Okay. That's a Tuesday. It's Tuesday telling you shut up tail strikes are tuesdays wednesdays thursdays fridays saturdays sundays and mondays <laughs> every day isn't it winglet wednesday tail strike tuesday <laughs> winglet like wednesday tail strike tuesday yeah i don't know crash your winglet into something it happens a lot apparently yes we need to stop doing that too yeah i'm gonna continue with this Please. sorry <laughs> They recommended ensuring that the depiction of information related to the Romeo fix near Kathmandu on approach and en route charts used by Thai international crews be amended. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You think? This is why standardizing to like Jeppesen charts was a big thing for most of the world. Oh, did that not happen yet? No, it probably did, but the operator, a lot of operators decided not to yet. But Jeppesen charts have been around forever. Forever. Swear to God. They recommend reviewing the training requirements for crew operating into Kathmandu, and in particular, the provision of simulator exercises. If you're going to operate in and out of Kathmandu, you just got to be really trained for it. Sorry, but that's just the truth. Actions by the Department of Aviation in Thailand. Crew resource management courses have been sped up for all pilots and reviewed by a human factors expert to ensure that the events leading up to the Kathmandu accident are fully analyzed and included in the courses. So they literally use this accident as training material. Which is what you should do. Right, unfortunately, it makes sense, right? They f***ed up. Let's not have you f*** up like they f***ed up. Right. Planning and landing weather minima at Kathmandu were increased pending a review of air traffic control services. Eventually they were. So there were... The minimums were changed... For a lot of things, and obviously with the advent of a lot more technology and such, we're able to do a lot more precise flying around areas like this, even in bad weather. But there's a lot of factors that they used specific to Kathmandu to make sure that the charts and the requirements for flying in and out of the airport and the minimums were very clear, emphasized, and very safe. 
That doesn't keep things from happening all the time, but that's usually very small aviation when it does. There is no VOR DME approach to runway 20. Mm -mm. It ain't here. Mm -mm. No, they've got precision approaches now and such because it needed to happen. And now they have radar. So uh, All pilots operating to Kathmandu have been given an extra supervision flight to the airport. So, in other words, mm -hmm. if you've not done it before, Here's how you get it, it supervised by somebody who's really good at it. And everything else, uh, there was a couple more here toward the bottom that I just wanted to cover really quick. I'm kind of skipping over a lot of stuff because now I just wanted to talk about what really changed. Review with the aircraft manufacturer the requirement for further information on the A310 checklist related to flap faults. This was an important thing because obviously the flap fault was what kind of triggered the whole... I, I shouldn't say that's not what triggered the whole thing, but that is what triggered the missed approach. And ultimately that's where they got lost. So the... Checklists were updated by Airbus, but also the flap fault issue was generally rectified, so it just wouldn't happen. Operators were also notified of its existence, so they would know what happened. And Airbus figured out an actual troubleshooting because there weren't official troubleshoots for this exact issue, although there were some vague troubleshoots in the checklist that they could use. But ultimately, the crew just cleared it themselves by cycling the flap lever a few times. <laughs> Turn it off and turn it back on again? Pretty much. Pretty much. And then the GPWS. Obviously, we got EGPWS now in all airliners, but which fixed things a lot. But also, it was a big point after this where they were like, okay, great. But also, the warning, which, of course, you know, the captain thought was false. But even then, even if he hadn't, it wouldn't have stopped the airplane from hitting something because they didn't have enough time to react. So No, but his reaction was still garbage. Oh, sure. Complete Bad judgment in the garbage. moment. Bad judgment in the moment. Because CRM went down the drain immediately. So two very experienced pilots who honestly, on a good day, probably were very good pilots, had really bad judgments when things started going awry. And that's really the big thing to learn here was CRM as a whole. Kathmandu needed some rework, and Thai Airways needed some help. It looks like they now have their own approach control, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. They do. The ACC kind of was the approach control, technically. However, but, now they have an official yes. approach control. That's why, like, when you get radar, eventually, you have to restructure everything mm -hmm. for the area, because now you have a whole new set of guidelines, and it's a lot more work, technically. But that's pretty much it. Well, that's, that's it. All right. That was Thai Airways 311? Yes, Thai International Airlines at the time. Okay. They're known as Thai Airways now. Okay. Um, Thai. Yes, Thai. Okay, people. Uh, this is already a really long episode. Yes. Thanks so much for listening, and happy holidays. And happy end of 2023. Christmas was yesterday. Yes, and by the time you hear the next episode, it'll be the new year. Yes. By the so. time you're hearing this, I'm in the Caribbean. Don't yep. come find me. Yep. You'll be floating on a oh, boat somewhere. Good luck. <laughs> if you live in the Bahamas, you'll be no, getting you'll be getting, be getting on, getting a boat, on the boat. Getting on a boat that day. Yeah. And then floating somewhere on a boat. Don't come find me. I won't. I'll be here. There's a rum distillery in Nassau. You can probably catch Christy at if you're <laughs> if Don't you're lucky. triangulate my position. Yeah, right. Do you no, know fine. which rum distillery where? There's like no. one major rum distillery in walking distance. Never mind. We didn't say when, where, or how. That's that exa exactly. You don't know when she's gonna be there. So anyway, matter. thank you so much for listening. Thank you for another great year. 
Yeah. Uh, and we're leaving this year with more than a year's worth of recommendations, which is wild. We almost have a year and a half, actually. Yeah. A year and a half worth we of recommendations. Said, hey, we have a lot of recommendations. And then people were like, oh, we heard you want recommendations. And I was like, that's not what we said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we did actually. I say did it. at one point say we've never crossed the year mark. And that was a and mistake. Y'all said, took that a little too seriously. Yeah. Our, JJ with the 16 different recommendations. <laughs> our listeners said hold my beverage so we mind you some of those will probably get weeded out as we get to them eventually if like reports don't exist anymore we found it there's not enough information in the reports we find it like that does happen eventually and we're sorry if that happens but at the same time most of them will exist most of them will do and that still means we have more than a year worth of recommendations which is just crazy to me i mean like literally we'll be having this conversation next year with recommendations we already have hey yep. guys general overall petition if any of you are in Peru, for whatever reason, can you please ask the government for the report on Lanza Flight 508? Yeah. Please. Yeah. Someone get it to us. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Also that. Anyone who's bored in Peru. Yeah. I don't know if the Peruvian government is just like, here's this weird ass report from well, a billion years ago. Supposedly you can get it from like their library or something like that. I don't know what it is. Much like we have like a library Ray of Congress. Congress. I'm sure they have something similar. National Archives. Something like Can that. Can someone go get that, please? Somebody go ask. Somebody go figure it out. Because it's not online. I would love to go visit Peru and go do such a thing, but that ain't exactly easy. No. So. And we also don't speak their language, so. Yes, you do. Peru? Spanish? It's Spanish. In Peru? Yeah. Yes. I thought it was Portuguese. No, no that's Brazil. Brazil. Oh. Well. Everywhere else except Brazil and... French something. French Guinea. French Suriname, I don't know. Suriname, which is Dutch. That too. And then there's the French one. And a couple islands out there. But then there's literally like two dozen countries Spanish. that speak Spanish. Granted, some speak the native native languages. Mm -hmm. So like some people in Mexico still speak Nahuatl. Some people in Peru still speak Incan. Mm -hmm. Quite rare though. Well, and there's also slang. Mm -hmm. Spanish, which I, I, I don't know what that means. Anyway. This is a conversation for the post episode. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a very great holiday season and a happy new year. And we'll catch y'all in the new year. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.